Today is Engineers Day and is celebrated every year on the birthday of Bharat Ratna Sir M. Vishweswaraya. Vishweswaraya has made innumerable contributions to our society and to talk about that today, we have JNU's Professor Dhruv Rena. Professor Rena specializes in the area of history and philosophy of science and has the honor of Heinrich Zimmer Chair for Indian Philosophy and Intellectual History, Ruprecht Karls Universität Heidelberg, Germany. Uh, hi, sir. Welcome to DS Radio. Hello. Hello. How? Yeah. yeah. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Hope you're doing good too. Yeah. Yeah. Under the conditions. <laughs> sure, sir. So, my first question to you is... Uh, M. Vishwaraya is known for the dam that he constructed across the Kaveri. Uh, could you list some of his lesser known but equally relevant contributions? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are many, you know, the dam in that sense was amongst the last of, you know, his concrete contributions. Um, you know, I mean, he trained as a irrigation engineer and with, um, of course, he dealt with water supply and drainage issues as, as well. And he was posted in Nasik district. So he tells us in his autobiography that his first job was to build a pipe siphon across a channel on the Panjara River near Dhulia. Right. Um, and then from there he graduated on to developing a larger uh, water supply scheme for the town of Dhulia. Now this meant that you also had to construct a reservoir. You know, I mean, these were probably areas which received scanty rainfall and you had to construct a reservoir to impound the water. Then, he was moved from there, that is, uh, this was in Nasik district. Uh, then from there he moves on to Pune, where he, had, he informs us that he apprenticed in new branches of civil engineering. But his really first big project came in 1893, and this was to build a barrage on the, uh, in Sukur on the Sindh. And this is his first exposure to the Indus River. So he moves to Sindh in 1894, as you know, in uh, Sindh was then part of Bombay Presidency, right? And uh, so he helps build the Sukhru Barrage. 1899, he is then put in charge of the irrigation projects in Pune district. And the goal then was the expansion of cultivation of crops through the expansion of irrigation facilities. And over here, he really innovates and develops something which was referred to as the block irrigation system, right? It was a kind of innovation uh, for the times. I myself am not, I don't remember quite now whether it was, can, you know, was it a minor organization innovation or was it, did it have to do with a, a major technological development? But anyway, the scheme was introduced on the Nira Canal and this is something we still need to look at. After that, uh, he goes on to design something called automatic sluice gates on Lake 5 at uh, Kharakwasla. And uh, this was something about which he was proud of because he patented the system and it also sort of uh, widened his appreciation in the community of irrigation engineers uh, at the time. And so then he is called uh, to build a drainage and water supply system at Aden, which was a British port. He comes back to Kolapu as a special consulting engineer, I mean, uh, uh, to design the water supply system for Kolapur. Then, of course, there's an altercation. There's a disagreement with his employers on the promotion scheme. He quits and he is called to Hyderabad as a consulting engineer. And the Muxi River had just uh, inundated the, the city of Hyderabad. So he's called in as a consultant to advise on the reconstruction of Hyderabad and design a drainage system for the city. A drainage system that would also, in a way, protect it from the ravages of flood. And then after that, of course, he comes back to Mysore, first as a, as the chief engineer to the public works, and then, of course, he is appointed later as the Divan. So he has a, 
he has a range of accomplishments. We must not forget at this time that not all our cities had drainage schemes, water supply schemes. I mean, you know, these were still being developed. There were no standard templates for doing these things or protocols. And so this man had to improvise, innovate, turn to local resources and find new ways of doing things. These developments that today might seem everyday, but in the time, at, in their time, they were very novel. And uh, my second question to you would be: How was Vishweshwaraya different from his contemporaries like Raman or Einstein, for that matter? Yeah, you know what? I mean, um, my feeling is that that the comparison is unfair. Uh-huh. You know, in the sense that both Raman and and uh, and Einstein were both research scientists. Their job was to advance the frontiers of knowledge, right? I mean, they were devoted full-time to doing that. Uh, Vishweshwaraya was a practicing engineer, right? But what uh, what redeems him is he's, I mean, he was a very, very creative engineer for his time. The comparison with Einstein, of course, doesn't hold any water. But if we do say, okay, we do draw a comparison, then with Raman, the comparison might hold some water. That they both belong to those early generations of Indians who had come into the modern profession and had acquired a name for themselves based on their contribution, yes. based on their abilities, and thus became models for other Indians. You know, they became role models for other Indians entering these professions. Mm-hmm. I think in that sense, the comparison with Raman would hold, but not with Einstein. And uh, you have written about the time in which uh, Vishweshwaraya contributed to, and he was a diwan of uh, the state of Mysore during the World War One period. And did you did the yes. event in any way influence his work? You mean uh, the First World War? Yes, yes. See, you know what? When he he becomes the diwan of Mysore, I mean, and follows in a in a tradition of uh, a long tradition of you know, I mean, very illustrious diwans of the state mm-hmm. of Mysore. Mysore was under under British administration, mm-hmm. it still belonged to part of uh, indirectly administered India. But um, 30 years before his time, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it acquired the status of what were called uh, model states. There were four states in India that acquired the status of model states. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were Baroda, uh, Mysore, Travancore, and Cochin, mm-hmm. which meant that there was some degree of autonomy in internal administration, right? So he himself was deeply involved in the reform of the administrative service, the efficiency audit, mm-hmm. the Mysore Economic Conference. And if you look at the volume edited by uh, uh, Narendra Pani, who edited a volume um, which is the diary of a bureaucrat, mm-hmm. who was a contemporary of Vishweshwaraya. And, you know, I mean, uh, the bureaucrat doesn't particularly like him because he is, you know, what you might call a barbarian bureaucrat. He's, he's faceless, but very, very efficient. All right. And so this is, yes, you are right that this is a period of, of turmoil, you know, I mean, all over the world. And some of that turmoil is going to rub off even in the state of Mysore in another way. But uh, the war, the war itself in the long run would prove beneficial for him. No, I don't think the war had an immediate impact uh, when he was the Diwan. Right? What happened during the war would have spin-offs a little later. A bit diverging a bit here, but about the princely states, we have had another influential Diwan, Sir Mirza Ismail, who was, you know, yes. taking into consideration was Mysore a magnet of talent at that time? See, as I told you, you know, these are model states. I mean, these four states which I mentioned, these are model states in indirectly ruled India. All right. And so what has happened is that these states could attract, I mean, you know, could attract uh, career professionals because the state was free to appoint them. 
the colonial government had no say in their appointment mm-hmm. in any way. So that was one, and Mysore had a reputation of uh, had probably seen uh, at least five divans by the time uh, by the time Vishweshwaraya became the divan, and then after he stepped down, and then he was followed later by uh, Divan Ismail Mirza. Yes, it is true that it was attracting people of competence at the time. Mm-hmm. Indeed, I mean the opportunities were there. Coming back to Vishweshwaraya, like why do you call him the engineer sociologist? You know, he had trained as an engineer, but. He was just not an. He was just not an engineer. He was a man with a certain vision, and um, as a visionary, he just didn't dream up schemes and leave them for others to pursue. He went through with them. This meant that he had to mobilize and persuade politicians. He had to talk to bureaucrats. He had to talk to industrialists. In many cases, he spent a lot of time with farmers and cultivators and agriculture in order to draw them into the schemes he had thought through very carefully. Right, uh, and the same goes with his efforts in urban urban planning. And you know, I mean, he is he is one of the one of the many people who inaugurated the planning discourse in India. You know, I mean, he wrote books on economics as well, right? On on the economic reconstruction of India. Now, all this required some kind of understanding of how society works and how consensus can be reached over important decisions. It's just not about convincing engineers, you know. And uh, for this reason, I. Find uh, Michel Carron's idea of an engineer sociologist uh, as an idea that captures many aspects of uh, Vishweshwaraya's repertoire of skills he had. There is a tendency and a very strong tendency to see Vishweshwaraya as a as a technocrat. No, I don't think so. He is a man who is who is teaching himself about about society. He's talking to people of a variety of skills and expertise right down to farmers in the whole range um, and trying to you know bring some meat into the pictures he's developing very carefully so that's the reason I'd like to see him not so much as a technocrat although you can't rule out you know that description of him entirely but I think he's much closer to the engineer sociologist another thing is that uh, the, uh, the tree of Mysore like autonomy for the state of Mysore like, was that like the main you know armament for Vishwesha to industrialize the state of Mysore at that time you know after the defeat of Tipu Sultan and as we move into the next century I think historians have probably pointed out I may be wrong you know there's kind of deindustrialization of the region that commences. I'm not sure whether the treaty of Mysore was the instrument that could be deployed for the industrialization of Mysore but because the situation was far, far more complicated. But the important thing is how Vishweshwaraya managed to convince and play along the enlightened Maharaja and his advisors of the plans he had drawn up. And this plan, and over here, I think he was a major innovator, that linked up technical and technical education. So, you know, during those war years, more or less, you know, that's when when the polytechnic is established, when Mysore University is established. So he has a plan of linking up technical and technical education, mm-hmm. rural industrialization, and industrialization proper. And when he's talking about industrialization, he's just not talking about the building of industry, but of the industrial system. So this industrial system is also part of his plan about the expansion of hydroelectricity to expand the industrial base, the establishment of uh, Bhadravati Iron and Steel Works for the development of the railways also. Then the failed proposal of the automobile industry and then, of course, the aircraft industry, which finally comes in. The development of banking institutions, State Bank of Mysore. And then the very strong linkages with the, which he had with the All India uh, Manufacturers Organization. I think all this 
was part of a much larger and deeper plan mm-hmm. thought through for the industrialization of the of the state exactly yeah. and how would you describe vishweshwarya was he an administrator a bureaucrat or an engineer what does vishweshwarya stand for you you know as i pointed out i think he was all these mm-hmm. and a very uh, capable one or uh, at that see from today's perspective there may be a tendency to see him as a technocrat and that would be too easy you know i mean uh, it's during his time that uh, you know the maharaja conscious of the rise of the anti caste movements in tamil nadu i mean introduces some kind of affirmative action policy in the state and vishweshwaraya disagreed with the maharaja you know there's a major disagreement on this issue it's not that he is opposed to affirmative action he, he believes that Uh, facilities must be given to the caste that have been denied education and facilities and mm-hmm. etc but there should be no there should be no reservation in jobs because within his kind of technocratic vision uh, that would uh, sort of undermine any kind of meritocracy that he thought he was also trying to institutionalize within the state services right the, the maharaja of course was a little more enlightened and he disagreed with him on this and so vishweshwaraya finally step down so there's a tendency here to see him as you know this kind of meritocrat technocrat who was not too sensitive to the societal concerns and their complexity mm-hmm. uh, but uh, i think on the other issues he was talking about when he is uh, you know talking about uh, the linkages between rural industrialization uh, between technical education and education proper and industrialization over so there i mean he has a fairly clear and complex understanding which is not purely technocratic in that. Could you tell us more about this sort of import of technology during his time and uh, and how was Mysore under him different than and before and after him? So if you could... Yeah, now see, the more important question is that of constraints on the import of technology under colonial rule. This is something economic historians have documented very clearly. Uh, what is important to note is that these constraints were quite simple. and because these constraints were so imposed there was a it of course resulted in local innovations to the extent possible but uh, the colonial regime was quite miserly on the issue of the transfer of technology to the colony uh, however from the beginning of the 20th century you know i mean suddenly the colonial state felt it also has in some sense to be responsible to its citizens and the question of the efficiency of the regime came under question And so, from 1910 onward, what we see is repeatedly at the Shimla Conference and other conferences, the question of technological capabilities was repeatedly raised in different forums, mm-hmm. and the responses were quite diverse. But it was during the First World War, and for purely strategic reasons, that the colonial regime relaxed some of the constraints on the import of technology, all right, and encouraged some local industries to meet the strategic needs of the Allied. For example, the rise of Kanpur as an industrial city is also closely connected with the war economy. Mm-hmm. All right, they were supplying leather goods and what kinds of things uh, for the for the British army. In the 1920s, that therefore, uh, you know, I mean, seeing a little relaxation in the colonial regimes of technology transfer. I mean, Vishweshwaraya uh, travels with some industrialists to the United States and. kinds of negotiate a deal for the manufacture of cars in india and i forget which company it was chrysler or general motors i don't remember but it's one of them and the imperial government turns it down but little over a decade later i mean you know the second world war breaks out and then um, 
you know, the English are also fighting the war on the Eastern Front. And so they needed a facility to overhaul aircraft and large Al-Sihachan comes along and mm-hmm. they denied you some time back the permission to build a uh, car manufacturing mm-hmm. industry, but they allowed you to build a facility to overhaul and probably even build and uh, my final question to you would be uh, is uh, Vishweshwarya still relevant in today's India uh, I mean what can the current government learn from him you know I think that the times are in very 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 different now the nature of urban scapes has changed so much technology is revolutionized and societal aspirations have been transformed so I really wonder what the current regimes might learn what current governments can certainly learn for him more important I think uh, not just current governments, but uh, is but a range of other actors who are out there in the technology game. Uh, so much of his irrigation work mm-hmm. was undertaken in regions that received scanty rainfall of a semi-arid region or fell within what you might call rain shadow region. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The exception here would probably be the TR. I think we can continue to learn something from his thinking about how he addressed and designed systems for these kinds of regions. How did he approach this problem? Because he did. And these systems he designed seemed to work for at least three to four decades after they were installed. We could learn from him, you know. I mean, because here is this man, yeah, he's designing an irrigation system somewhere in the semi-arid regions of Maharashtra and he then calls the convention of farmers and he talks to farmers and he travels around every region of every probably district and taluk of the state to try and learn of its geography, its soil, population of water and and, uh, looking at even agricultural practices before he sets down to design something. So I think there's there's something we need to look back there. Maybe we could learn, we could learn something. That part of his his life which might still be relevant. All right, Mr. Rana, thank you for joining with Deccan Hill Podcast. Yeah. Thank okay, thank you. Goodbye. Yeah. That's all in today's episode. Tune in this evening on our news update podcast from the newsroom to catch all the exciting developments of the day and to get the news while it's still budding. For latest news and updates, log on to www.deckenherald.com. Check out our e-paper at www.deckenheraldepaper.com. To read news on the go, sign up to our Telegram channel t.me slash News. Keep up with the news from your interested sphere by downloading the all-new Deccan Herald app, in which you can personalize, have quick glance at news shots, check highlights and even listen to. You can get it from Google Play Store and Apple App Store and you can find the links to the same in the description.